Welcome, everyone. I'd like to talk uh, for a little bit tonight about the ultimate mitzvah. Um, ultimate, uh, at the very least, in the sense of last in a series. Uh, the very last mitzvah in the Torah, mitzvah's tar yag, in the uh, counting of the Sefer Achinah, who lists the mitzvah in order of how they appear in the Torah, is the mitzvah of writing the Sefer Torah. Where does it say to write the Sefer Torah? So if you look in Mokra number one, in Parshat Vayelech, which we laid not terribly long ago, the Ata on Shabbat Shuvah, the Ata Kitzvu Lachem Tashira Azot, the Lamdat Bnei Israel Simat Vihem Lamanti Aliyashira Azot Ei Bnei Israel. Now write for yourselves this song and teach it to Bnei Israel. Place it in their mouths so that this song should be testimony for me, for the Jewish people. Write for yourself this song. What does it mean? Write this song. So the Gemara says in number two. Amar Rava says in Masechet Sanhedrin, this is the tangent, the Masechet Sanhedrin, the second paragraph, discusses the special avachot that apply to a king. The king, the Chatav Lot, Mishneah Torah, Zot, Sefer, has to write himself a Sefer Torah. So, as a tangent of the midst of the king writing a Sefer Torah, Amar Rava, or Rava, Afapishi Michla Avotav Ladam Sefer Torah, even though someone's forefathers might have left him. He might have inherited a Sefer Torah. Mitzvah It is a mitzvah for him to write his own Sefer Torah. Now, write for yourself the Shira. Write for yourself the Shira means write the Sefer Torah. Here, of course, there is an obvious question. Um, what's the obvious question? It says to co-write a shira, a song. The Pshuto Shalmikra is clearly talking about which song? The song of Azina, which we're about to, inter- to introduce in that when we're up to this passing in the Torah. How does that mean he should write a Sefer Torah? So here we have a fundamental machloket in uh, Parshanot. How to interpret, how to understand the way Chazal interpreted this pasuk. Number three, the Ramban says, Mitzvah Asel Kol Ishvi Ishmi Yisrael Uchtov Sefer Torah Letzvo is a mitzvah on every Jewish man to write his own Sefer Torah. It says, now write for yourselves this Shira. Meaning, write the Torah, which includes the Shira. Because one may not write the Torah just one parsha at a time. The Ramah understands that the word Shira refers only to the Song of Hazim. So how does how is there a mitzvah to write a whole Sefer Torah? Because if the Torah commands us to write the Shira, it obviously means write the Torah, which contains this Shira. Why is that obvious? Because one may not write partial Sefer Torah. Okay, this has engendered a lot of controversy, both in terms of the lumpus of what the Rambam holds. Does he hold a mitzvah to write the Shira? But as a condition of that, you have to write the whole Torah. Or does he mean it's a mitzvah to write the whole Torah? And exactly how he knows that it is forbidden to write uh, one parsha. Uh, from the Torah, after all, in the Zuzah, we only write one part of the Torah. The Ramah somehow understood that Shira means the song, and the mitzvah is to write the Torah, which includes this song, as well as lots and lots of other things. We can understand the weakness of this, uh, of this pshat, uh, because why do you have to write the whole Torah in order to write the song? And the Akronim go to town on this, uh, one can spend hours discussing this, which we will not. I want to discuss another way of reading this Medrash Chazal. What's another way to interpret this Medrash Chazal? That what might Chazal have understood? 
that the Torah itself is called a Shira. Maybe not the Torah include with the, sh- the Shira and everything else. Maybe they understood the Torah itself was called a Shira. And the Akronim pointed out there are many places in Chazal where we see that the Torah itself is called a Shira. Number four, Amrei Shlokesh, Kala Oseik Batarab Alayla, whoever learns Torah at night. HaKadosh Baruch Hu Moshech Alav Kutshel Chesed Bayom. Hashem gives him a special line of grace during the day. Shneemar Yomam Yitzavei Hashem Chasdo, Umatam Yomam Yitzavei Hashem Chasdo, Mishum Valayla Shiroimi. As the Pasuk says, during the day, Hashem will command grace upon him, upon, upon me. Why? Because by Laila Shiroi because the song is with me at night. Therefore, if someone learns Torah at night, they learn the song at night, they get grace during the day. But what's, you know, without getting into Rishlokish's drasha, the assumption of Rishlokish is that having a song at night means learning Torah at night. That is, the entire Torah is called a song. Okay, then there's an alternate version of Rishlokish's drasha, but it's the same idea. The Ika da Amri Amri Shlokish, Kolo Sekva Torah, Bala Mazeshu, Domo Lalayla. The old version says not literally day and night, it means Olam Hazet and Olam Haba. Whoever learns Torah in Olam Hazet will get a special grace in Olam Haba. But the assumption is the same. The whole Torah is called Shira. Many other places in Chazal we find this as well, such as number five, Darshaning a Pasuk from Ishleim, Adeh Beged Yom Karach Chometz Al Nater, Vishar Bishirim Al Levra. What is the pshat of this pasuk? What is singing songs on a bad heart to to, a, to the bad hearted? What does this mean, singing songs to the bad hearted? So, teaching Torah to an unworthy student. Meaning, someone who has a bad heart, teaching them Torah is a negative thing. But what's the assumption? That Shar Shirin refers to teaching Torah. That the Torah is called a Shira. We find this in a third place as well. The, this is number six in the middle of a long discussion, Shaka Vitari in the second Darim. I just took out one line. Uh, now write this pasuk, write this shira. Maybe that means only the song, only literally the song. No. says, If this song is supposed to be testimony, it must mean the whole Torah. Okay, you need a little context. If you don't believe me that in the context this is saying, don't think it's only the song, because then it wouldn't be testimony. Tulsa points out number seven. If it was only the song, that wouldn't be testimony. The song itself doesn't tell us what to do. So rather, it must be the whole Torah. So we find three places in Chazal where the whole Torah is called Shira, and when they want to interpret a pasuk of they say it's referring to Torah, the whole Torah, learning Torah. And even in this Pasuk, at first they think maybe it means only the Shira, but then they conclude that it means the whole Torah. And therefore, number eight says the Radvaz, um, the uh, number eight, Mishum, the Rava Azalushitase, Rava follows his approach, the Chola Torah Kula Nikrit Shira. And that's the basic point, the whole Torah is called a Shira. Kisan Hedrin Chavalfa in bed, and then he quotes. The uh, Gemara we started with, Amar Rav the Mitzvah of Tov Sefer Torah Mishalosh and Amar Biyataki Fulokam Tashirazo. That's why it's a Mitzvah to write the Torah. It says write the Shira, and the entire Torah is called Shira. And then he quotes all the other Gemaras, which I mentioned as well. Va'ayin Adarim Yitzchad and Aluf to be Korvda Shirazo Yishlomah Shirazo Kuda Rakni Korvda Manti Aliyah Shirazo Be'Ed Ayin Shem Barash Moran Shapirish Ishiral Vada Maisa Duteika Ayin Shem etc. He just quotes all the Gemara we quotes and. The Dharma says if it's testimony, it must mean the whole Torah. And in the Gemara in Chagigan, number four, it's referring to the whole Torah. The Gemara in Kulim, it's referring to the whole Torah. 
So we have a machloka here. The Rambam thinks shira means only the song, but somehow we understand if it's a mitzvah to write the song, it's a mitzvah to write the rest of the Torah also. And the Radvaz proves from many places in Chazal that he's a better pshat. Maybe it's a mitzvah to write the song, but the whole Torah is called a song. The Archa summarizes this very pithily, and with this we'll conclude our introduction, number nine. Mitzvah on every Jew to write a Sefer Torah, Mishalom. Reading number nine, the Orch HaShulchan, Even though someone's inherited from his father's Sefer Torah, he should write his own. As the Torah commands us, very last, number 613, write this song. First shot is, write the Torah, which also includes a song. But write the whole Torah because you're not supposed to write a partial Torah. Only one parsha at a time. Prince, say it's the Rambam. Then, after I, I uh, put an ellipsis, uh, skips on the analysis, calls up Yarnum Pirsha Rambam. He explained the Pirsha Rambam, but in my, in my humble opinion, he himself thinks that Shira Torah, the whole Torah is called Shira. So we can conclude that perhaps the more popular mainstream approach, the majority approach to understanding this Drusha Chazal, why is there a mitzvah to write the whole Torah? Because it says write the Shira, and unlike the Rambam, the entire Torah is called the Shira. Now, we only have to answer one question, and that will be the body of our Shira. If we get to answer this question, then great. If we answer this question, we still have some time left. Uh, we'll answer some other questions. Why is the whole Torah called a Shira? I understand there are some parts of the Torah that are literally songs, like uh, we all know from every day from the davening, Az Yashir, Shira Hayam, is a song. And Ha'azinu, that we learned recently, uh, a week ago this morning, uh, is a song. Maybe there's some smaller songs, Shira Ha'ba'er. And we even have a lachot. There are song parts of the Torah. There are non-song parts of the Torah. They have to be written differently. You know, the songs are written in a funny way. Uh, the in columns or in uh, diagonal patterns, like Az Yashir. And the rest of the Torah is written and straight uh, uh, all the way across the line. Uh, without a break between columns. The, uh, why did the whole Torah be called a song? It doesn't seem to be a song. You know, whether it's, you know, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was uh, waste and void and darkness upon the deep, etc. Seems like a story, not a song. Or if, you know, you get to, you know, uh, Thou shalt not uh, kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not com commit adultery. That seems more like commandments, not a song. So why would the whole Torah be called a song? That's the uh, question I'd like to see. A few answers that have been given over the, uh, really over the last uh, perhaps uh, 100 years, so 100 odd years uh, to this question. If anyone has a suggestion, the beginning of the shir is always the best time to participate because at the end of the shir, I'm always in a rush to finish. Um, so perhaps because of the truck, we do sing the, the Torah with truck. Perhaps that makes it a song, uh, quite possibly, and maybe I will come back to that. Uh, but we'll see that many of their children felt it had to be something perhaps a little more philosophical than that. Um, and I want to see explore three approaches that I found in the Mepharshim to explain why the Torah is called a song. The first is by the Nitziv. The Nitziv, okay, we uh, have to mention at such an event that the Nitziv was among all of the Achronim, uh, the Achronim being the Mepharshim of the last 500 years, the Nitziv was by far Rav Lichtenstein's favorite parish of the Torah among all the, uh, among all the Achronim. 
Um, partially for the Mitzvah's psychological insight, uh, you know, perhaps other reasons as well. One of the things that concerned the Mitzvah very much, uh, the Mitzvah learned living um, a little more than a uh, hundred years ago, um, you know, in the uh, very beginning of the 1900s. Uh, one of the things that concerned him, you know, many, uh, many Mitzvahim are speaking to their historical circumstances, to what bothers them, to what, what questions are raised in their mind, was the attack of the uh, sort of newly sprouted uh, non-Orthodox Judaism, or Reform Judaism, as they, uh, they called it then. Um, one of the first attacks the Reform Jews made, keep in mind, we're going back a while, as uh, they said, how come you Orthodox Jews, you say you keep what it says in the Torah, right? What do you say? You say, Hashem gave the Torah, so we have to do what it says in the Torah. You make it sound so logical, but you don't do what it says in the Torah. You always darshan, you say the Pasuk means this, it means that, and you, and, and, and you, you, you never do the simple meaning of what it says in the Torah. You always go to your Gemara, and you have all your drushos that say the Pasuk meant more than it really seems to mean. So what makes you traditional if you're not doing what it really says in the Torah? And many of the um, Mepharshim in that period of time, uh, more than 100 years ago, uh, were very bothered by this, uh, this historical challenge. What do we answer the reformers? A thousand years ago, they were bothered because the Karaites asked the same question. And in between, the Karaites dwindled a bit. There are still a few left, and no one asked that question anymore. And all of a sudden, reform came and started asking this question again. You know, where do your halachos come from? You know, are they really what it says in the Torah? Um, so, for example, there are Mepharshim on the Chumash, such as the Malbins and Mettenberg and Haktava Kabbalah, who tried to show how if you read the Psukim very, very carefully and closely, you see the source in the Psukim themselves for all of the interpretations of Chazal, um, the Nitziv was concerned about this on a meta level. Why is it that, and how is it valid, that we base our halachic practice on so many interpretations that are not Pshutosh Shalikra? Or not the simple chop. Says the Nitziv in his introduction to his parish of Chomish called Hamet Davar, number 10, which we had as number 6. They explained the Pasuk of Kitvulachem Tashiraz, referring to the entire Torah. They view Rai and Safi Dekra, they bring Rai a proof from the end of the Pasuk, Laman Tialia Shira Zopaid, said it would be testimony. We have to understand, how the whole Torah be called a song? It's not all written as a song. It must be. It must have the nature and the special properties of song. And song is always somewhat uh, metaphorical, poetic. Uh, everyone knows there's a difference between poetry and prose in two ways, in the, the, the nature of it and in its special characteristics. Everyone knows in poetry, in song, song being poetry, things are not as clear as they are in regular prose. You have to make footnotes, right? The, uh, you need footnotes in order to understand Poetry properly. Before that, this stanza, uh, this rhyme uh, refers to this story. Zechariah was given etc. The law makes me drush. That's not a drush. 
That's the nature of song, even written by humans. You know, take any song. I, okay, looking around the room, there, uh, not everyone in this room probably knows the same songs. The, uh, some people in the room remember, right, we all live in a yellow submarine. Um, the, uh, the, you know, the, the respected people in this room. Uh, remember, yeah, what does it mean? It certainly doesn't, does it mean that it's a song about people who are living in the yellow submarine? Perhaps it's actually a big machlokas among the scholars, uh, the Beatles scholars, whether it was actually referring to people living in a yellow submarine and was merely a nonsensical song, or whether it had a deeper meaning and was referring to the travails of the Beatles on, on the road, or whether it was referring to the social issues that were burning in their time and place. But whatever song it is, you don't expect a song. The, I apologize for all the younger people in the room. It's not just that I respect my elders. It's that I don't know any. <laughs> you were kids, I'm sorry. Um, but, uh, but I'm sure there are. Um, I'm sure they, 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 they've composed some. But a song or a good poem, always need footnotes on the side. What's it referring to? And you know what? I'm not going to understand the Beatles song without footnotes that tell me what was going on in the 60s, that tell me what movie this song was written for and what was the plot of that movie, uh, etc. You... A song is not a good song if it makes everything clear. It is supposed to throw hands, you know, the Simon and Garfunkel songs, right? The, the, none of them mean the shot of the words of the songs. The, uh, they all are referring to something deeper, and someone needs to explain to you, probably someone who lived at the time, or close to that time, needs to explain to you what that meant in the context in which it was said. Likewise, says the Nitzim, when it comes to the Torah, said to me, Okay, without reading the whole thing inside, it's very clear that someone has more inside information, someone who understands the background, the context, understands the psychology of the one who wrote the song, can tell you what the song really means. Someone who just interprets the words as they're written will get it wrong, will tell you what the song doesn't really mean. That's a difference between poetry and prose. If I am writing a history book, it should be clear from the bare words, black and white, what it means. You shouldn't need any background information. If I'm writing an instruction manual, you shouldn't need background information. That's the difference between poetry and prose. If you need background information to read the prose, it's bad prose. It should be exceedingly clear in the shot. If you don't need any background information to understand the song, then it is bad poetry. Poetry should always leave something hidden, and you need to unearth that. That's part of the skill of, uh, of, of poetry. That's part of the wonder of poetry. And often, you know, it'll have uh, double meanings, etc. It'll have wordplay. says, when it comes to the Torah, he says, people think that we should just read what it says in the Torah as if it was the instruction <coughs> manual that came with your uh, microwave. But the Torah is not prose. The Torah is a book of poetry. And poetry, in order to understand the authorial intent, you need to go a little deeper. In order to get shot in poetry, you need to darshan it. And we need to look back at people who were alive at the time or closer to the time. The Chazal, who had perhaps the Somers traditions that told them what was going on at the time that might fill in the gaps. We need to ask people who know the psychology of the author. Okay, the psychology of the author of the Torah is unknowable in some fundamental sense, but still, there are people who 
Kiviachol, as it were, understand Hashem better than I do, and maybe they can have a better idea of what he meant in this Shira than I can. And that is why, says the Nitzit, it is very logical to look to the, uh, even an example from human song. It, uh, it's not so popular nowadays to say what they call the Yotzrut, or the Krovot. The various piyutim, the liturgical compositions written a thousand years ago, plus minus a couple hundred, that we say, for example, this morning, there were some said in the Birkat Priyashma of Shacharit, and only for the German Jews, there was a small one said during Kedusha of Musaf, on Shemini Atzeris, there'll be very long ones, including some of them we'll say, which are called Tila Geshem. If you try to read those, you will have no idea what's going on without the footnotes at the bottom. Get, well, master of good footnotes. Um, because they're all making literary allusions, and they're all referring to something that some previous uh, poet wrote. It's okay if a human being composed the song, and we're not going to understand it without knowing the background, without footnotes. Then, if Hashem composed the song, it is logical that we need to understand it on a level deeper than what it says. It is not the reformers who are telling us we find, you know, why not follow the true meaning of the text. We're following the true meaning of the text, because the true meaning of a song of poetry is not the plain meaning of the words. And I think that's a very deep observation. He goes on to say that also in poetry, and this is something if you try to understand the Yotzer of the various Putin liturgical compositions, it's very difficult. They have restraints. Sometimes it has, it has to rhyme, it has to have an acrostic, etc. There are always restraints to poetry, which make the author choose funny words and have funny ways of saying things. There's likewise in the Torah. There are various, they, the Torah is not written in rhyme. The Torah is not written with acrostic or alliteration. But he says there are all kinds of restraints. He, he suggests perhaps mystical reasons or even just a shot reason that even if a word seems to be not the word you or I would have used, well, in any song they use a word that you and I wouldn't have used because they need to get the meter or the rhyme. Likewise, even if the word is not what you or I would have used to express that, that doesn't mean we're interpreting it wrong, we're interpreting it right. The word was chosen because it had to have a certain ring, because it had to hint at certain things, it had to create a certain impression, it had to have a certain meter, or it had to reveal mystical secrets to those who know how to delve, delve into them. It says that it said the Torah is called a song because that tells us the proper exegetical methodology to use for the Torah. You can't understand pshat in the Torah unless you understand on a deeper level. I'll point out that uh, we're not getting into academic ancient Near Eastern studies here, but if anyone wants to do some uh, Googling, etc., ancient Assyriology, look up the Enuma Elish, which was a very, very basic non-Jewish religious text, with interpretations on the Enuma Elish from the time of the Tanakh. It's fascinating how the way they interpreted their texts is very similar to the way the Gemara darshins and interprets the text of the Chumash. It could very well be that if you lived in the time of the Chumash, you would have understood that there are ways that you interpret poetic religious texts that nowadays might seem strange to us, but that's because we're not living at the time. You don't understand the background. To understand poetry, you need the background of how people read poetry in that time and place. And it's actually fascinating to see that in the ancient Near East, the way most people read religious poetry in the non-Jewish nations was they darshaned it, was if there's an extra letter, it refers to an extra halacha, etc. Showing that our mesorahs, our traditions of how to interpret the Chumash are far from being mere speculation.
That is one approach. Let's move on to a second approach. If we turn the page, number 11, we have the Orch HaSholchan, who had quoted his summary of the basic mitzvah earlier. The Orch HaSholchan wrote, as perhaps we're familiar with it, if not, we should be, uh, there were two great halachic works which were written um, in the order of the Shulchan Aruch about 100 years ago, more or less. The Mishnah Brura, someone whispered, and the Aruch HaSholchan. Right, the Mishnah Brura is uh, hopefully familiar to us all, not never too late to make it familiar to us. Um, it was written by the Chavit Chaim, and it takes the form of a running commentary on the Shulchan Aruch. The Aruch HaSholchan, uh, written by uh, Rav Yechiel, uh, Rav, hmm? Rebichiel Michael Epstein, yeah, written by Rebichiel Michael Epstein, uh, is not a commentary on the Shulchan Aruch, but goes in order of the Shulchan Aruch and quotes what came before the Shulchan Aruch, what came after the Shulchan Aruch, all the different opinions. There is a, okay, a lot of research has been done, a lot of theories have been thrown around about the difference between how the Mishnah and the Aruch Shulchan Paskin. We're not going to get into that now. There's a basic difference in the way they compose their works. If you read the Mishnah Brura, what he generally tries to do, or said, there's always exceptions, is tell you this is the what the Shulchan Aruch says, this is the proper interpretation, this is how we paskin. He tries to give you generally a bottom line psak halacha. He does not tell you all the different opinions. Only when he's not sure how to decide between two opinions, he will go to opinions and say, well, there's this opinion, there's that opinion, and you know, perhaps better be mocked or better be makel, whatever it may be. But he is not going to, when it was a machlokis in the Gemara, a machlokis in a buying rubber in the Gemara, he's not going to tell you that. The Shulchan Aruch doesn't appear, the Mishnah doesn't appear. When there's a machlokis in the Ramah and the Rashba and the Gemara, he generally will not tell you that. When there's a machlokis between the Magen Avram and the Taz, how to interpret the Shulchan Aruch, he usually will not tell you that either. He's trying to give you a bottom line halacha. The Aruch HaShulchan tried to do something very different. He starts, instead of starting with the Shulchan Aruch, he starts every simon with the Gemara. He says, this is the Gemara, and these are the different ways that we show an interpreter the Gemara. And this is how we decide which of those different interpretations we follow halakhically. And then these are the other issues that came up, and here are the opinions, etc. You read the Aruch HaShulchan, and then in the end, he gets to a Pesach Halakh. He says, and this is what I think we should do. Yeah, you need to have an answer at some point. But the main difference between him and many other works is that he's interested in bringing a range, a broad range of opinions. And people wonder that's one of the reasons why he didn't write it as a parish on the Shulchan Aruch, because then it would be sort of awkward. The Shulchan Aruch's already picking one opinion. Right? Shulchan Aruch was written about 500 years ago, so from everyone before him, he's already picking one opinion. So then start to say, this is what he says, but let's go back, would be awkward. So he says, he just wrote his own book, Starts the Gemara, eventually gets the Shulchan Aruch, and then moves on. Why did he do this? So says the Orch HaShulchan, number one, in his introduction, he says, If you wonder why there's so many different opinions in my book, or why there's so many opinions in Judaism, and how they always argue about the details of the Halachot, realize this is not a, a smart question to ask. The philosophers already says that there's no end to how many details there can be, meaning you can never cover all the details. There's always more fine-tuning that one can do. He says a famous rule, or a rule principle we're familiar with, 
all the different opinions, it's not that one is right and one is wrong. We follow one in halacha sometimes and not the other. We have to have a psak halacha. So it's not that one is true and one is false, one is right and one is wrong, one is Torah and one is anti-Torah. All the opinions are the words of Hashem. As the Chacham said in the beginning of the second Chagiga, Divrei Darshani, a Pasuk that we uh, learned this morning, Divrei Chacham Min Kedar Banot Uchmas Mimot Into Im Balei Asupot Nidnu Merachat. Uh, the words of the Chachamim are, etc. And one of the one of the Chazal Darshan, Balei Asupot Elu Talmidei Chachamim Shiyoshmiu Asupot Asupot Boskim Atara. Balei Asupot of Talmidei Chachamim Torah scholars who sit in groups and learn Torah. Halolu Metam and Halolu Metarim. These say Tomei, these say Tahor. Halolu Osur Halolu Metar. These say Osur, these say Mutter. Halolu Posul Halolu Shein. These say Posul and these say Kosher. Shemim Yomar Don Heich Ani Lomei Torah Meital. Let someone say, how can I learn Torah? Everyone's all you have this. You know, someone who, you know, they became religious because. They wanted an answer to all the problems of life. And they go to Yeshiva and they learn and say, now I'm going to get a straight answer to everything. Finally, I found the truth. The second they show up in Yeshiva, you know, it's not like the Kirib Seminar anymore. It's a Yeshiva. All of a sudden, everything they learn is that there's a machloket. And he says this way, he says that way, and you can say this way, you say that way. Heck, how can I learn Torah? He says, what's the point? I thought I was getting the answers. So, Hazal, we're aware of this question. The Apostle teaches us they're all given from one shepherd. Shepherd with a capital S, all from one God, from one supporter, from the master of the entire world. Meaning, even if they're different opinions, all those opinions are really part of what Hashem intended in the Torah. How could this be? He continues in the second paragraph, paragraph eleven. Because when two Tanaramaram, the uh, sages from the time of the Mishnah and Gemara. Obi sort of had to argue about civil law or uh, or, or, or ritual law. Each one says, my reasoning makes sense. Ain't on Shekhar Cloud, no one's lying. If I say this makes sense to me and you say it makes sense to you, neither of us are lying. We're each saying a svara, we're each saying a logical point. You two people can both be logical and still disagree. The Mario Tiny Latir, Mario Tiny Sir, one who's a logic, logical reason should be Mutter, one who's a logical reason should be Usser. Marmadavi Milton Miltahahi, Marmadavi Nanahir. One compares it to in one case, say, oh, this should be Mutter, like that case. This is, this should be Usser, like that case. The equal name you're able to do with Kim Chaim. And you could say they're both right. They're both words of Hashem. How so? Because maybe they're both right. How could they both be right? The, uh, right? Not like the uh, famous joke, right, about the rabbi who uh, didn't have so much of a backbone, and you know, two people came arguing. Heard one guy said, "Ah, oh, you're right." Heard the other guy come say the opposite. Says, "Ah, oh, you're right." His wife said, "Schmendrick, they can't both be right." Says, "Ah, oh, you're also right." Um, so, uh, <coughs> how can they both be right? So the Yochel Shulman says, "Zin and the Shaychai Taima was Zin and the Shaychai Taima." Sometimes one reasoning will be applicable, sometimes the other reasoning will be applicable. Because the reasoning changes according to subtle shifts in circumstances. The Yorah HaShogun is telling us something philosophical here. Saying, I don't want to write a Mishnah Bura. I don't want to just write one opinion. I want to give you two opinions, even though I'm going to pass like one of them. Why? Because both opinions have merit. Both opinions have logic behind them. And even if we pass like one opinion, you should know there's another opinion, because sometimes maybe we'll pass like that other opinion. Right? What do what rabbis do? Uh, what do rabbis do for a living? Um, they, I mean, various things in real life. Um, but 
the what do rabbis do for a living? They paskin halacha. And how does it work when you paskin halacha? You all know, you know, someone calls me with a shayla. They already looked it up in the art scroll halachot of whatever it may be. And they know what it says there, and I know what it says there. So why are they calling me? Um, well, maybe they don't possess the art scroll halachot of uh, sotah, or, or whatever it may be. Um, or, you know, the circumstances are always slightly different. And even if the book passes one way, maybe it's more complicated. Maybe there are different opinions. Maybe in this circumstance, we should pass in the other way. That's part of the art of Psakalaka, uh, and the Archashulam didn't want to give up on that. Truth, he says, is really um, it, it's multivocal. There are different sides to the truth. It's not just I'm right, you're wrong. I may be right under normal circumstances, but there's always another side to the issue. And he thought it was important for us to know all the different sides of the issue in order to truly understand the, hal- uh, the halacha. Um, and I think that you know, there's a great degree of wisdom to that. Um, you know, why should? You know, I, I, it's frustrating to people sometimes. Uh, I know a lot of people who, you know, I, I have to, you know, I start talking halacha and they get very upset because I don't give a simple answer to everything. I make everything complicated. Okay, so sometimes a rabbi has to know how to decomplicate things. Um, simplify. Um, but why make up a word when there is one thing? The, uh, but, the, uh, the, but, the, the truth is that life is complicated, the world is complicated, and the halakha is also complicated. Um, you know, the uh, Hashem, Hashem is complicated. Hashem has different sides to him, right? There's a Shem Havaya and a Shem Elokim, the beginning of the creation of the world. Hashem had to put together Midata and Midata Rachamim. There are different sides to something, okay? Hashem has two sides, Midata and Midata Rachamim. Sometimes he uses Midata Din, and sometimes Midata Rachamim. But it all depends on the circumstances. So one has to know that there's flexibility. There is ambi- there are ambiguities. Not unlimited. Some things are just not against the halacha. But within the halacha, there's a complex system with room to maneuver depending on the circumstances. And that was important for the Archa Shulchan. And he thought that created a more whole halacha than just picking one opinion and ignoring the rest. Last paragraph of 11, he now says a beautiful idea. Beautiful uh, parable. All the different valid Torah opinions of true Torah scholars are the words of Hashem. They all have their place in Allah. This is the glory of our holy and pure Torah. The whole Torah is called a song. Why is the Torah called a song? Says, what is a true song? Let's let us say, let us say that I went to hear a choir performance, and they all sang the exact same part, made the exact same notes, the exact same sounds at every moment. That would. I would be disappointed, I would be upset when I came. That wouldn't be a very good choir performance. Now, if I go to a kindergarten graduation and all the kids sing the same thing at the same time, that's a rousing success. <laughs> uh, but if we're beyond kindergarten, if I, a choir should harmonize. They sing slightly different parts, but it works together and creates something more beautiful than only one part. Harmony creates a sound that is more beautiful than if everyone were singing in unison. And if I go to a symphony, 
They're all playing slightly different sounds, but they're harmonizing with one another. You can only create beautiful music with harmony. Says that the glory of song is when there are different parts that are not the same and they harmonize. And that is the sweetness. Whoever swims in the sea of Talmud will see the taste the sweetness of understanding how the different opinions come together. Says the Archashokan, why is the Torah called a Shira, a song? Because unlike prose, if I if I have a political protest and we all want to say, um, I don't want to get into politics here. Um, what do we all want to say? Down with Nixon. <laughs> Impeach Nixon. Impeach the bum. Right? We all have to say it exactly in unison, or else they won't hear our prose chant. But if people are singing, they should harmonize, they should sing slightly differently. He says that's why the Torah is called a Shira, because it is not just prose where everyone should have the exact same opinion in halacha. No, the beauty of Torah is that there are different aspects in halacha. And there are different opinions, and there are different ways of looking at things. And all those ways of looking at things come together, obviously, the different Torah sages should try to harmonize with one another instead of fight with one another. Um, but if they are harmonizing with one another, that creates beautiful music of Torah. So for the Urcha Shokhan, the Torah is called a Shira to hint at the philosophical idea of the wholeness and beauty and advantage of a multivalent halachic system. I want to end with the third idea, which I saw quoted from the, uh, the founder of the, uh, the Panovich Yeshiva, not in Panovich, uh, but in Bnei Brak, uh, the Panovich Rav. Um, in number 12, Rav Shmuel Rizovsky, uh quotes a, uh, something the Panovich Rav uh, liked to say. A third shot. He explained there are two parts of Torah. There is just Torah, and then there is Shira. The Indian Habakina Shnia, just Torah is Torah. But it says in, in the Torah. What is the Shira? The Torah is the song of the life song of a Jewish person. Your deepest feelings find expression in delving into Torah. You have to express your whole heart, your whole soul in the Torah. The Torah plucks at the most sensitive heartstrings of a person. This is the song of Torah. He says things so simple, but I think so powerful. He says, Torah, for all we've been philosophizing about the right way to interpret the Torah, the true meaning of Torah, the multivalence of Torah, and you know, one can intellectualize a lot about the Torah. And I think one should. But at the same time, Torah is not merely an intellectual academic pursuit. Torah is not the same as you know, going to college and studying classics and, uh, you know, and, and, and reading, uh, reading Aristotle or studying East Asian studies and uh, reading Confucius and uh, in the original. Torah is more than just a cold intellectual pursuit. Torah is a song. What is the difference between a song and prose? When I am reading prose, I can get information out of it, but I don't get any feelings out of it. I'm getting the information. Prose is cold information. A song does something to me. 
music is actually a very powerful medium. Why is music so powerful? Because besides the words which convey information contained in the meaning of those words, there's a beat, there's a tune, it awakens certain feelings and emotions in me. The song can make me feel happy, it can make me feel sad, it can make me feel excited. There's so many different emotions that songs can evoke in me because of the psychological power of music to evoke emotions. You get into a song. <coughs> it's not just information. Says the Panavitcharav, he says, that's what Torah must be. If Torah is just information, you can have all the philosophical, deep knowledge of the right way to learn Torah in the world, but it's maybe Torah Simulan Moshe, you, you, you've learned the Torah Moshe commanded, but you haven't learned Atakit Lechem Tashirazo. You haven't learned, you're missing the song of Torah. The song of Torah is the emotional aspect of Torah, is the excitement of Torah, is getting into the sugya, is feeling, you know, even the stories now, looks in the Torah, feeling the happiness, feeling the sadness, the, you know, how does one feel the sadness of Tisha B'Av? Or that what well, and the happiness of Purim. By learning and appreciating, not as a whole historical exercise, but by getting into it. We know that people who go to Yeshiva and learn Torah very deeply for a long time do so not only because it is intellectually challenging, but because it speaks to their heart. Because they're 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 into it, because they feel the Torah inside it. They feel Rav Lichtstein loved to talk about how Torah has to be. Um, this is not his Kiddush. I'm sure every Gubble talked about this. Torah has to be not an encounter with a text only, but an encounter with the author of that text, with the commander of those mitzvahs. An encounter with Hashem. An encounter with Hashem is a emotional, is a spiritual experience. Maybe Torah is called Shira to remind us that for all the intellectual effort we have to put into it, and for everything we can gain and draw out of it by our intellectual efforts, Ultimately, it's only a real Torah, it's only a full Torah, if it captures our emotions as well. If we feel it in our hearts and not only in our minds. The, I have to end now, but I just want to end with one very, very simple idea. Well, to summarize what we've seen until now, we began with the last myth in the Torah. The Ramam said it means Rei Hazino, and then somehow you also have to write the rest of the Torah because you can't just write one part of the Torah. But many other Mepharshim pointed out, based on many Mekorot, that it means write the Torah to the Torah's called Shira. Why the Torah called Shira? We saw three explanations. One, that it's Siv, because even to get shot in the Torah, you need the footnotes. You need to interpret it in, in a way that's deeper than just what the words say in black and white. You need to use the information of people who were there at the time or close to the time who understand the author better. Number two, the Ar HaShokhan, explaining how he wrote his book. The Torah is called Shira because the truth of the Torah is not one opinion that's always right, but is the multiplicity of opinions. The idea that things are complicated, there's more than one side to everything, and that the answer is not always going to be the same the harmony of the different conflicting arguing opinions in Torah. And the Panovich said, the Torah is called Shira for a very simple reason. Because it can't be a dry intellectual performance. It has to grip our emotions. We have to feel the Torah and not just know the Torah. I'll end with one very interesting drush of Iksav. So far it ties into Alumnus, which you don't have time to go into now. The Gemara said it first. Even if one inherits the Sefer Torah from one's parents, you have to write your own. Why must you write your own? 
says the same for Chinuch in 13. I won't read it, uh, I'll read it very quickly inside. Why must you write a say for Torah? The roots are because people do things in accordance with the props they have that help them do things. What you do depends on what tools you have at your disposal. So Hashem wanted everyone to have a Torah so they could look into the Torah and see what to do and they'll be able to follow the Torah. After all, if you don't have a Sefer Torah, remember, in those days there were no printing presses. If you don't have a Sefer Torah, you can't learn Torah and you won't know what to do. He continues, so you can learn to fear Hashem and to know how to do the precious mitzvot. Which are more precious than gold. And each person was commanded to work on this. Okay, if you just need the Sefer Torah to learn, then if you inherited one, why do you have to write your own? Says the Sefer He comes up with two reasons why. Even if you inherited a Sefer Torah, you have to write a new one. Number one, so that way you'll have two and you can lend one to your neighbor who doesn't have one. Maybe your neighbor just didn't have the wherewithal to find one. Number two, you'll have a new one because it's hard to read the old books. It's nicer to read the new books. They're clearer to read. It might be too hard to read after it's been, it had a lot of wear and tear. Okay, those are very adequate technical reasons. But the top Sofer says something a little more uh, philosophical. Number 14, the son of the Chetam Sofer, Okay, on a lumdish level, you might get into the Chakir, the Minchaschinov discusses there, is the mitzvah the result of having a Sefer Torah, or the process of writing it? Right, which seems to be what underlies this Chinoch versus the Ketav Sofer. But on a philosophical level, says the Ketav Sofer, you know why you have to write your own? Torah can't just be a routine. It can't just be, well, I do what my parents did. You know, it's nice. You know, if everyone, you do what your parents did, do what your, your mother did, and your grandmother, and your kindergarten teacher, etc. That's how traditions get preserved. That's nice, but that's not the goal. You have to personalize Torah. You have to find your meaning of Torah to you. It's good to follow the traditions of your forefathers. That's how the Jewish people have survived until now. But that's not the goal. That's not enough. You have to find your own meaning of Torah. You have to receive the Torah in your own way. And that's why... Even if you inherited a Sefer Torah from your ancestors, from your great-grandfather, you need to write your own Sefer Torah because you have to find the meaning that Torah has to say to you. And then he continues, um, said there's another hint in there. It's not just you have to take the Torah and find your own meaning in it. You also have to add your own meaning to the Torah. Everyone has a Kiddush they can say in Torah. Whether they are a rabbi, whether they are uh, whatever other profession they may be, whether they are very learned sometimes. People don't know. It's sometimes people don't know more Gemara can make Kiddushim. Sometimes people don't know less Gemara can have a certain insight. One never knows. Everyone has their own share in Torah. And therefore, everyone has to write their own Sefer Torah, as it were, not just say, well, I know the Torah everyone else knows. You know, I know that uh, my grandfather is from, so I'm going to be from. No, you have to find the meaning to you, and you have to find what you can add to the Torah. What insight do you have to add to the Torah that no one ever had before? What do you have to shed light on something in the Torah that no one ever thought about 
No one ever asked a question before. No one ever given answers before. Says the Ksavsofer, he is certain that every Jew has what to add to the Torah if they take the Torah and personalize it and say, not just what does it mean to us, but what does it mean to me? And I think that that is a very, very, you know, we started with the ultimate mitzvah of the Torah, being technically the last member of a series is technically called the ultimate according to Webster or whoever else is the arbiter of these things. But I think we really are talking about the ultimate mitzvah of the Torah. What are we talking about here? We are talking about seeing the Torah as Shira, understanding the true meaning of the Torah, understanding how Torah works, making the Torah something personal, something that has to do with my emotional, my inner life, my relationship with Hashem, my spirituality, and not just an intellectual pursuit. And, perhaps most of all, not just sufficing with the Torah that my parents taught me and my grandparents taught me and my great-grandparents taught me, but figuring out what the Torah has to say to you, how the Torah speaks to the things in your life that are different than your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. And then figuring out what you have to say to the Torah because your life is not your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and the Akronims and the Rishonims and the Golims and the Alorims and the Tanoims. What do you have to be mechadish? What insight do you have to add to the Torah that no one thought of before? Not because I'm smarter than everyone who came before me. Because they didn't live in my circumstances. So I have insight that no one else has because I have a unique vantage point and perspective. There's Ran Hashem, if we can really take these, uh, these li- going into Simchat Torah, if we can really uh, take these lessons to heart, we certainly have a lot to celebrate in Simchat Torah. And there's Ran Hashem, as we say every day after Shmon Esther, the Tain Chal Kingdom Torah we can all find our Chalet, find our meaning in Torah, find how it speaks to us, find what we, find our voice to add to the harmony of voices about Torah. Bezrat Hashem, we really have a lot of, to celebrate this in Torah and every Simchat Torah to come. Thank you so much to everyone for uh, participating.